Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is, is Comfort, Comfort Films. Films. Hello everyone and welcome to Comfort Films episode 26. 26! Where we're going to discuss the awesome 1984 Walter Hill film Streets of Fire. Streets of Fire! It's one of John's very favorite films. Yes. And since it's his birthday this week, we get to celebrate him and his number one pick. Oh yeah. So this is it, Streets of Fire. This is the number one pick. I would watch this over and over and over again. Uh, we cracked open, we had this Shout Factory Blu-ray that Georgia got from years ago at this point, and I always watched it on streaming. So we never actually cracked open the disc until tonight. And the movie looked amazing. It was this 2K transfer which was glowing. Yeah, it looked awesome. It sounded great. And then it had a second disc of bonus features that, you know, I thought I could kind of, you know, <laughs> blow through in 30 or 40 minutes. Um, it turns out that there are two feature-length documentaries. <laughs> These two documentaries are called The Making of Streets of Fire. <laughs> and then another one that's just about as long uh, is Rumble on the Lot, Walter Hill's Streets of Fire Revisited. Yeah. Both are packed with amazing information about this movie mm -hmm. and well worth the watch if you can track them down, hopefully, by purchasing the Shout Factory Blu-ray. Yeah. And they also have a stills gallery. They have on-air promos. They have music videos. I mean, they got everything. I mean, even just the poster gallery is really worth it. And yeah. like, believe me, like I had a lot of work to do this week, but John went through every single special feature because he <laughs> loved it so much. So. It was amazing. Like, I didn't want to miss one thing on here. <laughs> well, it's all really good content. Yeah. Yeah. And for a super fan, this is what you wanted. You wanted a complete package. Uh, the backstory and everything around it is so exciting and interesting. And, you know, the cinematography on this movie is stupid good. Yeah. Andrew Laszlo. Yes. Pro. A Walter Hill regular. Yeah, I mean, and the things that they did to to do the production design in this movie are just killer. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting, though, because I actually <laughs> never heard of this movie until I met you. Mm-hmm. It was not a Georgia movie. Like, I, I loved this when I saw it the first time. That makes me so happy because <laughs> this is just such a quirky film. And I've shown it to other people in my life. And, you know, I haven't always seen it be met with this kind of reception. Well, that's because the people you showed it to are losers. <laughs> besides me. Who's awesome. I know. I've showed it to some pretty cool people, but it just, it wasn't their cup of tea. I mean, I'm you know, joking, to be, but... a, yeah, no, I know. But to be in a relationship with somebody that digs Streets of Fire, that digs Jimi Hendrix, that's just cool all around. <laughs> we can make lousy jokes and eat pizza. I mean, this is a relationship. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta hook up with your friend, I guess. That's it. That's if you're it. gonna get married, marry your friend. So that worked out for us. But yeah, I mean, I, I this I know this movie kind of bombed at yeah. the box office. Later became something of a cult classic. Yeah, and you know it's just too bad that it didn't get this reception that it, that it deserved in '84 when it came out, because it is a really cool movie. I mean, 
it's interesting because it's kind of a musical, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like not. Yeah. I I was thinking about that this time when we watched it. This is probably my, I don't know, double digits, 10th, 15th time to watch this movie. Yeah. We've seen it in the theater. Twice. Um, here in LA. And we had Walter Hill show up and he did a Q&A. It was actually... Uh, a double bill. We saw The Warriors, and James Remar was in the audience, yes. and we saw Streets of Fire, and that was down at the Arrow in Santa Monica. That yeah. was an amazing night. And, and I believe we also saw this at New Beverly yes, yes, as well, yes, um, which was awesome. Thank you, L.A. Yes, and, you know, it's so cool when you, like, are such a fan of something that's so kind of niche, mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, that'll never happen. And then you get to see it in the theater. It's awesome. Yeah, and it'll happen again. I'm sure it'll come around again. And to be in the audience, you know, these were packed theaters. Yeah. These theaters were packed, and the audience was so invested in the film. Super receptive to Mm -hmm. the movie. Super excited with all the parts that we're excited about. Yeah. You know, so that was what was fun to watch. But, yeah, this time when we were watching it, again, I was saying it's, you know, double-digit times I've seen it. You've probably seen it, I don't know. Over 30 times, fair to say? I, honest to God, think I could be, I don't know, I think I could be in triple digits at oh this Oh my point. gosh, wow. Because I've been watching this since I was a kid. I mean, this was on cable, this was on home video, and I've watched this so many times. Now, I didn't get to see this in the theater until we came out to Los Angeles. So, I mean, you know, in the past, what, you know roughly 10 years Mm -hmm. is is when i saw it but um yeah it was something where it was a staple on home video for me i i saw it and i love the colors of it because i'm a huge fan of neon yeah and i'm a huge fan of like the 50s and i love the 80s this really mashes those up yeah i mean we've talked about that before i think with our back to the future episode Mm -hmm. that like the 80s was like a big 50s revival decade yeah and they did that to great effect in this movie with like the cars oh yeah the style you know but at the same time it had a lot of 80s in it yeah that was what was interesting one of the interesting things the mini (laughs) it's like the weird like style of this time that we're supposed to think is another time another place as it tells us but it's just funny because it's like what exact time and clearly it's supposed to be chicago-esque and also new Mm york-esque so it's kind of interesting but the time is really hard to pin down because it's so I mean, it's straddling 50s and 80s. Like, it's got one foot in each decade. And it also has, I'd say, more of a 50s feel in terms of the morality of the piece. Yeah. Because it's all about love, honor, you know. I would actually say, though, that there's also, like, this super anti-authority streak in it, too. Absolutely. Whereas the 50s, I think, was more, like, conservative. Mm-hmm. This is, and, you know, the John Wayne kind of movie. This is more like your Snake Plissken meets John Wayne. And, like, Kurt Russell does kind of like a John Wayne voice. Yeah, yeah. You know? So this is kind of more in that kind of oeuvre, I guess. 100%. Um, So it has, like, that kind of ironic eye on the 50s kind of hero type well and there's so many things in this movie that flip the movie 
on its head. For instance, the casting of Amy Madigan. Oh, yeah. Amy Madigan was reading for the role of Reva, which is Tom Cody's sister. And that went to Deborah Van Valkenburg, who's the perfect choice. Perfect. They seem like they are siblings. They There's do. never a question. I believe it 100%. Yeah, and she showed up uh, for the first time with Walter Hill and the Warriors. She's amazing. Yeah, another stunning movie that has like this comic book graphic novel aesthetic. She also has the coolest name in the world. Yeah, it sounds Van like an amazing barge. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm taking a Deborah Van Valkenburg to the event. You know, you can shut down anybody with that, you it, know? It makes me think of Valkyries. Ooh. So I just feel like she's going to, like, just come flying through the sky, like, you know, an amazing, like, harpy of death or something and just rip your head off, but in a good way. Well, that, I, I mean, that's what's so great about her. That's what's so great about Deborah Van Valkenburg as Reva, because she commands the respect of her younger brother, Tom Cody. Yes. You know, at the beginning of the film, when Ellen Aim is abducted by Raven, okay, and the bombers, she sends a letter to Tom, which is simply, Dear Tom, please come home. I need you. Reva. Yeah. And then he is out He's there, just man. there, like, instantly. Yeah. So you were saying that uh, Amy Madigan got cast as McCoy. Yes. Because she, while she was reading for Reva, says to whoever, is, to, is it Walter Hill that she's yes. talking to, actually? Mm -hmm. That's pretty weird, but I think it's cool that he was, like, casting his own movie, sort of. Um, She, like, says, you know, the best part in this is the sidekick, and I think I should play it. Yes. You know, and to his great credit, he said, okay then, and they changed it from overweight, Hispanic, like, bandolero-type guy yeah. to Irish, like, bruiser girl, former soldier, super butch, and my favorite character by a mile... Well, that's why I love this movie. You know, I'm a huge fan of Tom Cody. I mean, and I'm a huge fan of Reva. I'm a huge fan of the music. Yes. But this character of McCoy, I mean, you know, if it was Mendez, which was the original character name, instead of McCoy, would I still have liked the movie? I'm sure I would have. But with McCoy, you know, they talk about there's like a, a a platonic relationship, like a like a sidekick role for McCoy. Yeah, you know, it, it's so it's like Cody, and then we have McCoy, and they have like a great chemistry. Yeah, even though it's not a romantic chemistry, and you rarely see this in movies mm -hmm. that you have like a man who's friends with a woman, and there's nothing really going on there. You know, they flirt and they play around in this, I'd say, still. Yeah. But, you know, in the end, they're pals, you know. Well, you see, this is where, you know, I kind of go a different way, and I've always felt this way since I was a kid. Before, you know, we came in to record this, I wanted to rewatch the ending of the movie. And for me, the ending of this film, you know... I mean, honest to God, it will, like, bring a tear to my eye every time. And 
here's why. So we have the end of the movie. Tom Cody has rescued Ellen Aim, you know, and she's back, you know, and she's doing a show at the very theater that she was abducted from at the beginning of the film. Yes. So we come full circle. And opening for her is the band, the Sorrells, who they've run into during this wild night. Yeah. You know, of adventure as Tom Cody, Billy Fish, and McCoy were rescuing Ellen Aim. Yes. And so you have, you know, a, a happy story for this doo-wop band. Who were great, and we totally fall in love with them. Yes. From great. the second that you see them. You know, you've got four actors in this, and they seem like non-actors. They seem like an actual group. I would, okay, if not for the fact that probably at the time, even when I first saw this, I recognized like three of the four. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's, you know, it's Stoney Jackson, who's the one I didn't really know. Mm -hmm. But then you have Michael T. Williamson. Yep. Then you have Robert Townsend. Yeah. And then you have Grand L. Bush. Yeah. All of whom are like super well-known actors. Very established. A really big deal. The dudes have a huge career. Yeah. All of them in their own right. But they're all playing part of this group. So I knew who they, all of them were. And yet, every time I watch this, I forget that these are these actors. Yeah. Because they just play the roles so tightly and they're singing, like, this doo-wop song on the bus mm -hmm. when you first, like, get to hear them sing. And they're not really singing it, but I would believe it every time. Every time I forget that they're not really doing it. It feels like they're singing it live right in that moment. I know. I th the lip-syncing in this film is next level. Yeah. Next level. You know? I, I mean... So, all right. So, I want to get back to this this <laughs> ending. No, don't worry about it. This movie is so wonderful, and there's so many facets of it that I love. And I feel like I just crammed for the SATs <laughs> with the amount of information that I've poured in between documentary no, and it. reading. I was trying to make a point like five minutes ago, and we've gone like so far afield, and I'm going to have to like make sure I come back. But you should keep going with this. Okay. Ending piece. Okay. So at the ending of the film, the Sorrells are the opening act. And they lip sync the amazing song, I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman. And during that, we have Tom Cody and Billy Fish, played by Michael Pere and Rick Moranis, respectively, backstage having a discussion. And, you know, Billy Fish goes to Tom Cody. I know that, you know, you're in love with her. She's in love with you, meaning Ellen Aim. I will stand aside and, and let you be together. And it seems kind of like macho bullshit at first with like two guys deciding the fate, you know, of a woman. But you see, the way I thought about it was when Tom Cody says, I can't give her what she needs, but you can. Yeah. I actually took that as he really couldn't give her what she needs. And then he goes and he talks to Ellen Aim and he says as much. He says, you know, if you need me, I'll be there for you, which 
that's pretty cool to me. I love that when there's someone that actually says that to you and they mean it. Yeah. I've had points in my life where people have said that to me and I know that they meant it. And you're like, wow, this is an amazing moment. Yeah. You know, and I've had a few times in my life where I've said it to other people. So that that's that's very meaningful to me. But, you know, it's decided that, you know, you should enjoy your career, be amazing, live your life. You know, you should be with Billy Fish because they had a relationship. Yeah. And obviously things were going well. She seemed happy and, you know, and successful. So it's like, okay, I'm going to go. And so he goes. And then we go into the last number which is Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. And very dramatic song. And it you see, sounds... Yeah, and, and you see Tom Cody walking out, you know, through the theater to the door. And he stands at the door for, for most of the number. And, you know, when you're on stage, I mean, you can see people in the front row, but you can't see people that are at the back of the theater. But in this movie, I feel like Ellen Aim can see him. He definitely can see her as he stands at the door. And then he leaves. And then as he goes outside, he is heartbroken. Because you can tell that he absolutely loves Ellen Aim. But he was being completely honest in saying that he couldn't give her what she needed. And he wanted her to have her dream. And I'm just like, wow. You know, it's just like seeing someone be so unselfish in their love. I'm like, this is wow. Like, yeah, like he'd be holding her back. Exactly. And, and you're just like, oh, my God, did that really happen? Because, again, you have all this, you know, honor and this machismo and, you know, all this like Clint Eastwood, you know what I mean? Man with no name you know, John Wayne type of stuff. And then you have this reveal that this guy's vulnerable. Because honest to God, it looks like he's thinking about crying. He is. You can tell. When we watched it, the, you just watched like the end of it again. Yeah. And it, I could totally feel that. It felt like he was going to cry. He was on the verge. Well, and what's funny is, you know, they, they showed in one of the documentaries that Michael Perret wanted to cry. He said, this is such a heavy song that she's singing. Tonight is what it means to be young. He's like, I want to cry. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, he still said he gets broken up when he sees it. Yeah, and Walter Hill is like, <laughs> he's like, you're not crying in this movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't happen here. So we're outside, Tom Cody, you know, really feeling this loss. And then what do we see? We see... The Mercury pulling up, and there's McCoy, right? Yeah. And she's like, hey, you, you never guess what? I just found this car. Somebody just got rid of it. And it's the one that Tom stole at the beginning of the movie. Yes. And it, it, brings, it brings the entire movie full circle. And then, you know, he's like, you know, can, can I get a ride with you? Can I go with you? And they kind of have their back and forth. And he gets in the car with her and he's like, oh, this is my big chance. Right. And she says something to the effect of, you know, you know, cool it out, guy. You're not my type. I told you, you you're not my type. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. um. And I, I, I love it. And uh, 
so it, it's like you know they have that and then they drive off as is, is, is the music you know kind of continues and fades and it, it's just it's a beautiful moment to me is they drive off you know into the night and the reason it means so much to me the ending is because all of the pieces seem to fit together now i know they said mccoy and cody didn't have any feelings for each other i don't agree and i felt like when they go away together in the end that they're going to end up together and i feel like billy fish and ellen aim are going to stay together so i feel like in the end everybody ends up where they're supposed to be the sorrells they get seen yeah right they get their career everybody is on track everybody is in the right place and for a movie that's so jumbled in terms of time and place intentionally and might i say beautifully everything you know everything works out you know the bad guys are gone yeah you know what i mean and and you feel like they're not coming back no and you know and it's like tom cody took care of the bad guys and because of a decision from walter hill which was a departure from the original idea no one actually dies in the film like people might get their butt kicked people might get shot but no one dies yeah which is amazing because it, it is really this rock and roll fable and it's for me the ending to this is and we all lived happily ever after i know that there were supposed to be a, you know two sequels to this and i would have loved to have seen them but in a way i think there's a real beauty to this film and, and the way it that ends. it ends well do you know what the ending is which somebody pointed out online and i never would have made the connection tell me it's got the same bittersweet quality and it pretty much lines up exactly mm -hmm. with the ending of casablanca <laughs> you have oh. rick you know who's in love with elsa mm -hmm. and they have a history yep and they haven't seen each other in a long time mm -hmm. they come back together in casablanca he helps her out then at the end She's planning to run off with him, mm -hmm. but instead he brings, you know, her husband to her and gives them, you know, passage and they leave. Yep. And then he walks away with Claude Rains. Oh, yeah. And they say this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. That, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's very similar I never would have put it together. No, I But never. I was reading like IMDb trivia and one of like the spoiler tagged things at the bottom is like this this has the same ending as Casablanca and I was like, Wow, yeah it does. It's I mean, again though, I would say that's if we go with the idea that Cody and McCoy are friends, which many people say the actors were saying it. I think even Walter Hill said it. Well, but I felt like they had a chemistry, too. Well, and we also have these points in the film. When he first meets McCoy, you know, he's like, basically, you know, you want to go to bed together. You know, <laughs> and she's like, no. Well, you know, I mean? you know, but then again, who knows what happens with Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that could be it. <laughs> No, that totally. There weren't could be a lot it. of women in Casablanca. They could have. <laughs> they could have ended up together. Totally, man. It totally. could have been like a 
our flag means death situation. That oh, just... that would be awesome. <laughs> that show was great. It is. Yeah. Well, it's. I, I hope they get. I hope they get a second season and oh a third God. season and even Same. more. It's a great okay. show. Anyway. Anyway, but so going with this idea that you know McCoy and Cody could end up together. This is my other point in that. So we have a scene the next morning, okay? Because what happens is McCoy sleeps on Reva's couch. Mm-hmm. And Tom Cody sleeps in the spare bedroom. Yeah. And then Tom Cody takes off in the morning. And we have a scene between Reva and McCoy as they're leaving. And, you know, Reva's like, oh, I'm surprised, you know, you weren't in bed with Tom. And McCoy says something to the effect of, well, you know, you got to kind of make them you know, work for it or yeah. something like that. So it's, I, I feel like the seed is planted right there. So yeah. that's, that's, that's where it is. I feel like they definitely leave it ambiguous. Yeah. So that you could kind of take it either way, but I'm kind of with you. Like I definitely see where you're coming from. Yeah. That, you know, there's something there. There's a little spark with those two. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, it could develop. It's not the same kind of passion that he has for Ellen, but, you know, lasting relationships aren't always based on that. Like, I mean, that's the interesting thing about this is that, you know, you can be like horribly in love with someone. Yeah. To use a much ado about nothing phrase. But, you know, it's not good for you. And that's basically what they're saying here. Like, yes, there's a huge passion between Tom and Ellen, but if, you know, they pursue their relationship, she's not going to be able to pursue her dreams. Right. And he doesn't really fit into that world. No. So one or both, you know, one or the other of them or both is going to be giving something up if they stay together, you know? So I think that that's really poignant in the end and it's played wonderfully you know, I think a lot of people don't really think this movie is very serious, but I feel like there is a lot of serious emotion and uh, and love in this movie. It's a yeah. huge theme. It's love is the biggest theme to me in this movie, and it's what has kept me interested after all this time. I still sometimes try to see if there's a connection between Billy Fish and McCoy, because they're always at each other's throats so much. And for them to be fighting so much, I'm like, hmm, where there's a spark, there's fire. Well, you know? they had like a Beatrice and Benedict right. kind of a thing. Right. Yeah, well, I don't know. Or maybe they just want to murder each other. <laughs> I think it's I think it's the latter because I've really, I've tried <laughs> to look at it and it's like, I thought about that. I was like, what if, you know, they, they went other ways? But the thing that we could say in a world that doesn't exist where Billy Fish and McCoy do get together once again, it's a situation where they're so different. And I don't feel, you know, I know we could say opposites attract and, and that does happen. But McCoy and Billy Fish, I, where could they fit There's together? There's no commonality yeah, there. Yeah, it just I it mean, doesn't like, go together. They're just different worlds completely. Altogether. I mean, yeah. like, he is like Mr. Business. Yeah. Like, music industry guy. You know, managing Ellen, managing the Sorrells. Like, he's just all about making money and doing his job. Yeah. She is like this former soldier 
she wanders around. She doesn't really have any solid, you know, job. Although at the end, there is kind of like this role reversal where Cody at the beginning is kind of like higher status because he's hiring her as like a subcontractor for this rescue job that he's doing. Yeah. But he ends up giving away his his $9,000 out of the 10 and, you know, just walking away from Ellen with, like, his pack and that's it. Yeah. Where And then McCoy rolls up in the car with, with money because she still has her thousand bucks that she got out of the deal. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like she's, like, turning around and doing him a favor now. Like, you helped me out when I was in the gutter, and now I'm going to help you out. You know, so I feel like that's what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a, a reciprocal relationship with the two of them. Yeah, and they're just great. Like, both actors, Michael Prey and Amy Madigan, are, like, so good in this. And just, like, I really can't even imagine anyone else doing this part except Amy Madigan. No, I couldn't either. She's... This is like, I mean, I think she's fantastic in everything I've ever seen her in, pretty much. Yeah. But this is like, to me, her number one role. I love it. She embodies it. She makes it her own. Mm -hmm. There's nobody else that could do it. She looks right. She acts right. And she's like kind of my hero. Like, the funny thing about this movie is that the two female characters are kind of like the two different people that I would want to be, you know? Mm -hmm. You have, like, the cool, like, singer girl, you know, who's, you know, she dresses kind of, like, cool, and she sings, and, like, she has this kind of moderately glamorous life of a, of a minor rock star, you yeah. know? Yeah. And then you have, like, McCoy, who's, like, the ultimate badass bitch. Yes. And, like, I want to be both of those things when I was growing up, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like you watch this and it's like a wish fulfillment to see these two awesome female characters in this movie. Um, and then you have Reva, who's also great. So even though there aren't many female characters, the ones that there are are great. They're very know? strong. And they hold up to the guy characters because, you know, you have Cody, you have Billy Fish... I mean, you have your bad guy, Raven, which right. is Willem Dafoe, looking like a grown-up, slightly diseased Eddie Munster. <laughs> and his sidekick on his side is Lee Vang. Greer. Greer. I mean, the name Lee Vang, by the way, is my favorite joke ever. Yeah, it's awesome. I didn't really realize that it meant le like leaving. I didn't say it fast enough to get it for like many years. I never got it. He's <laughs> never got it. You know when I really got it is like <laughs> I was leaving work one day. <laughs> yeah. And I was looking just for a picture of somebody flipping the bird. Mm -hmm. And I found a picture of leaving flipping the bird. Yeah. And I sent, and I was, I was go getting out of work, and I sent you this picture, and I'm like, this is me right now, because I was all set, and I was leaving work. Yeah. And I was like, this is the ultimate visual joke, and I'm so happy right now, because I've, you know, I've thought this guy was pretty awesome for a long time. Mm -hmm. He was in Clue, which is like 
right up there with Princess Bride of the favorite movies of my childhood that I've watched over and over. Mr. Body. Yes, exactly. And then also, like, when I grew up a bit and started getting more into, like, punk music, like, earlier type punk music from, like, 70s, 80s, he was the lead singer of the L.A. band Fear. Mm -hmm. He was pretty amazing in that, too. I think they were on Saturday Night Live one time, and I saw that performance, which was crazy. Um, but yeah, so he's pretty cool and he's great in this. I mean, he's just made to be like this, you know, motorcycle tough guy. So I love him. And Willem Dafoe is so tapped Yeah. in this. And it's great. Like he does look like a weird, like vampiric kind of freak show. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what he's about. He looks like a vampire to he me. He does. He's looks very like pale. Mm-hmm. And he has, like, this dark hair and this, like, just toothy mouth that looks very, like, vampire-y. Um, and he's, you know, creature of the night, you know, running around with this crazy team of weirdos and, like, you know, kidnapping Ellen. So, and then he's, like, trying to just make out with her or something. It's, like, the grossest. Oh, man. The creep factor on that. Ew. I mean, there isn't a gauge no. that it could, like, <laughs> It chart goes off that. the charts. Yeah. It would break any instrument. Uh, he's yeah. so gross, but, you know, he's a great villain. He's a perfect villain. And the reason that I think Willem Dafoe is so fantastic in everything that he's in is he's not afraid to go there. And they also talked about this in the documentaries. You know, he is a yoga practitioner, and he is in control of every part of his body. So physicality, he is very comfortable with. Yeah. So obviously, you know, he's feeling the emotions, you know. And when you can take, you know, all that energy and then you can use your entire body head to toe to express it, man. And that's him. Well, and he isn't afraid to wear, like, weird stuff either, clearly. Because, like, throughout, you know, most of the movie, he has on, like, this... What looks to me like, I don't know, vinyl chest waders that you would wear to go fly fishing or something. Yeah. I mean, he looks nuts. It's like fireman pants made out of, like, garbage bags. Like, I don't know. It's it's so weird. But it's like a little pair of overalls. Well, they said that they wanted, uh, the costume designer wanted that material because she wanted it to reflect all the fire, all the flame. Uh, Because when they go to Torchy's and they get Ellen back and all the motorcycles have exploded and then we're shooting at gas pipes (laughs) and there are just flames everywhere and Willem Dafoe walks through it, you can see the reflection of the flame in the suit. That's very smart because a big part of the lighting design and production design of this movie is reflective you know, light. Right. Like, because there's neon reflecting off of the ground. The ground is always wet. Mm -hmm. That was another thing I remember from one of the documentaries. I don't know if it was one of the ones we watched today or if it was just something I'd heard a long time ago, Mm -hmm. is that, like, they wet down the street so that, like, the neon would, like, reflect off of the shiny surface of the street. And it looks beautiful. Well, it's, I don't know if it's the, actually the opening shot, but it's one of the early shots in the film, is we actually are looking down at the street and we can see the reflection 
of all the neon from the exterior of the theater on the ground. Yeah. And, and then we tilt up, and then we see that it's coming from, you know, the theater, and you see the crowd rushing in because they're going in to see Ellen yeah. Ames' show. It's amazing. It is. It's so great. And let's talk about the opening, actually, for a second. Mm. Because what happens at the opening is that you kind of are seeing, like, this neighborhood... Yeah. And all the people in the neighborhood, like no matter where they work or what they're doing, are like getting ready to do something. Right. And you don't exactly know what it's what it is yet, but like what it ends up is that they're all going to see this concert mm -hmm. that Ellen Aim is putting on. She's a local who's gone out and started to do well. Mm -hmm. And now they've come back to do like, I guess, a benefit concert. Yeah. That's not really specified what it's for, but I guess it's just for this area or something. I don't know. But everyone is super jacked up about going to see this because it's like a local person who's, you know, doing this music. Yeah. And it has that musical feel to me at the beginning. This is the point I was trying to make a million years ago. And I was like, you know what? Let me make 500 other points instead. No. What I was going <laughs> to talk about was what makes this a musical or not a musical? Because it was something I was really thinking about. You know, we did Elton John's Rocket Man right. last week, which is a musical. Mm -hmm. It's a jukebox musical. It uses a lot of his pre-existing songs and adapts them to a story, you know, which is the story of his life. In this case, is this a musical? Is it not? There's a lot of music in this movie, certainly. Yeah. Um, there aren't really, like, any dance numbers Apart from, you know, whatever's dancing on stage during the shows. Right, yeah, this, the stage choreography, <clears throat> yes. But, like, as far as, you know, these big dance sequences that you often see in a musical, like there was a dance sequence in Rocket Man with um, Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting. Right. So, you know, and obviously in a lot of musicals you have stuff like that. I know probably next week we were thinking about talking about Singing in the Rain. Mm -hmm. which is a dance movie just as much as it's a singing movie. Right. Um, so if you take dance as being a part of a musical, then that's kind of missing here, mostly. Um, at least in the way I would normally think about it. Well, this movie, they said, was very much like a, a you know, a 90-minute music video. Because the music video was so important to this film. Yeah, and that was a feature of the 80s. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think I feel less like this is a musical and more like I love that idea that it's a 90-minute music video. Yeah. Because a music video, people are doing songs, but it's not necessarily, you know, like a musical. It's like they're telling a story. Like, it's almost like a mini-movie. Mm -hmm. So this is more like you took that, the concept of a music video turned that into a movie, and then just plugged in all this music. Well, let me throw a wrench in, and this is actually interesting. Maybe there are dance numbers, but they come in the form of, of fights. sledgehammer fighting. And that is very possible. Yeah. But even still, I thought that the beginning of this felt like a musical also. Because you have, you have this music, like, pumping up. Right. They're about to do that song, Nowhere Fast, which maybe is my favorite song in this, but I'm not 100% sure because there's too many good songs for oh, this to yeah. pick from. But Nowhere Fast is, like, up there. It's a freaking great song. 
And, you know, that song starts pumping up and you see all these people like getting dressed, getting ready, you know, putting the closed sign on the, on the door of the diner. Yeah. You know, getting ready to go. And it feels like the beginning of a play when like, you know, everybody's like getting jacked up and like something's going to happen and you don't know what it is yet, but you know, it's going to happen. And then you, everybody goes into this theater, which on the outside is this beautiful, building that looks like an old it looks like an old 50s or earlier kind of a theater with all the neon outside on the marquee yeah and then inside it's actually the wiltern in los angeles we found out Mm -hmm. um which is an awesome concert hall on the corner of wilshire and western in la which we recently just went to to see a show it was the first time we've been there and it was pretty exciting to find out that this place where we just went to see Mammoth, WVH, and Dirty Honey is the same place where they shot the interior of Streets of Fire. How did you feel about that? I was so surprised that we were just there. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I, and, uh, you know, when we went to see Mammoth, WVH, Dirty Honey, I really enjoyed the show. And I really enjoyed the feel of the wheel turn. It it feels like it has history. It does. I mean, they have pictures up of all these shows that they've had there and stuff. But even without that, it just has like this old, just historical quality that you could just feel how many cool things have happened there. Yeah. And one of those things happens to be Streets of Fire, which is really neat. And I think like you've had this experience before where like... I don't know, you were like super into Jimi Hendrix and he actually had played a show at Clark University, which is ridiculously random. Right. And then you had done, you know, shows on the same stage, probably, I guess. Yes, yeah. Where Jimi Hendrix actually played. Yeah, it was Atwood Hall. You've done things there, too. Well, I auditioned for things there, but I didn't do a show there. You directed your King Lear piece there. Mm, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I mean, like... You know, you did, like, full shows and everything, and it was the same place where Jimi Hendrix played. It was an amazing feeling to look at these photographs and go, oh my gosh, I was right there. Yeah, and I mean, this is the same thing as Streets of Fire. You've been watching this movie since you were a kid, and now you've, like, actually been to the place where this great, you know, concert in the movie is happening. Yeah. Which is pretty freaking exciting. I mean, it's exciting for me. And I haven't seen this movie as many times as you. So I love stuff like that. I love it too. And I I love the music in this because right from the beginning, right from where we're getting everybody ready to go, it is like a, a musical. It actually makes me think about Jesus Christ Superstar. Because at the very beginning, what happens? You know, I in the film, everybody's getting ready to put on the show. And also, I've been in a stage production of Jesus Christ Superstar, where at the beginning, you're actually putting on your costumes. You show the preparation. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it, it's an exciting way to lead in. And Ry Cooter, you know, did the score for Streets of Fire, which is amazing. And the movie starts off with this driving beat, you know? And you're like, all right, all right, you know, and um, and then that seamlessly goes into, you know, the the opening number, Nowhere Fast. So it, it's like it is just like a show, you know, like you'll have that that pre-show music to get you going, which I feel is like what Ry Cooter did. Yes. And then that just goes bang 
right into the show. I mean, they really do an excellent job of bringing you into the world, you know, because, yes, we see what happens here. This is a town that, you know, is is in decay. You know, they said they wanted it to be like a, a, a rust belt city that, you know, and they wanted it to be that everything has kind of gone downhill. But the one thing that people still love, that they still cherish, is music. So people, you know, get dressed up. They go out and they go to the show. And this is like the heart, you know, of yeah. the city. And this everybody what keeps it going. is like so energized and so thrilled about it. Yeah. And they bring that energy to the show. And then, like, while Ellen Aim is performing, like, the crowd is just going crazy. And they're just dancing and jumping and shouting and loving it. Mm-hmm. And it's so great. It just really feels like you get the energy of that when you're watching it. Well, and that's what makes the movie so strong, is when Raven and the Bombers come in and literally abduct Ellen Aim right after she's just started this amazing show. It's this hometown person back. You know, it gives so much hope and so much joy to these people. And what happens? Some hood takes it away. Yeah, and everybody freaks out, yeah. like, big time. Uh, this is the first time we see <laughs> This is like Clyde, played by Bill Paxton. Yes. Like jumps up on stage and is like ready to like fight, you know. But then he just gets cold cocked by Greer. Mm-hmm. And we saw the interview and Lee Vang was talking about the sound effect they used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but it is like way more intense than just a punch sound effect. It sounds like just like metal on metal, like, you know, like crushing. Um, but yeah, it's pretty good. Well, they said that they actually used for some of the effects, these punching effects, they actually took a pig carcass. Oh, God. Because it's like very similar, yeah. right? <laughs> to, to like humans. And so they took this pig carcass. And they hit it all kinds of different ways. Like they said, with like a two by four and God knows what else. Oh my God. So it's like we have the supercharged video game sounds, which is perfect. Like why wouldn't we want to have these amped up sounds and this vibrant comic book film? Yeah. And one of the people that actually uh, were in the art department on this film, they actually specialized in neon. That is something that they studied. So it was like a a perfect marriage. Yeah, that was the right person to be on this movie. Yeah, I believe it might have been the art director. Um, Yeah, it it was just, it was completely crazy. Well, because in in another great music video-esque scene... They're the the sorcerer kind of video. Yes. Just the Stevie Nicks song that somebody else is performing it in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, they were showing that they did it on like this spinning kind of platform yeah. in this dark room with just like a lot of like neon squiggles and stuff on the walls. Mm-hmm. And it looks awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And the song is so good. Well, yeah, they said that what they had is they had... Uh, they had uh, Diane Lane on a turntable in this this neon cylinder. And then they had the camera on like another turntable going around her. Mm, yeah. And so it was just this amazing, amazing awesome. effect. And then the fact that they shot it on video and then they transferred the video to film 
And then in the actual movie, we see the, the, the video in part on a television. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that, that is so much commitment. It's really cool. And they said that that wasn't an easy transfer. Yeah. You know, back at that well, time. Well, at that point, yeah. Because this is, you know, before there was a lot of technology around video and mm-hmm. digital. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, the technical aspects of this movie are just something where once you go in, it's just like, whoa, there's no end to it. Like, for example, they shot this on the Universal Backlot, and there were a lot of explosions, and they were near a residential area. And so what they decided to do was, like, put a tarp over their set so they could shoot all day these night scenes, you know, but they ran into trouble you know, with the tarp, like they said a strong wind came in and it was like this enormous ripple that looked like this massive wave. And, you know, the rings that were holding the tarp on were popping off and it sounded like a machine gun, you know, <laughs> and these grips were hanging on and thankful everybody was OK. And, and they, they managed to, to make it work in the movie. But at times they would have, you know, like light leaks come through. And they also had problems with birds getting mm. in and, like, slapping up against oh the tarp. And they said that, like, they would have to shoo away birds. And they even said that sometimes people, like, shoot shotguns oh just to get, get the birds to go away. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a movie. And in my experience, limited as much as it is with movies literally nothing is ever easy (laughs) like if a problem can happen it will and if you know it will happen seven times and be compounded by another problem like that's just how movies are it's actually how kind of any project is and having worked in projects it's not fun (laughs) (laughs) it never works right well, there are so many moving parts in a movie. I mean... So many people. Right. So many things. So many uh, opportunities to go awry. Well, I mean, even to get to the production phase. Yeah. You know, you have to find your actors. You have to find your crew. You have to find your budget. You have to find your studio. I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, it's almost a miracle that movies get made at all. Absolutely. So the movie's called Streets of Fire... And that's from the Bruce Springsteen song, Streets of Fire, from Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is such a good record. It's the best. You know, we're huge Springsteen fans. Huge. Don't tell anyone, because I've been spending a lot of time saying I'm not, but... <laughs> no, not, like, I, I didn't really get into him until much later in life. Mm-hmm. I kind of was just like, eh, my whole, you know, existence up until... I don't know. Probably again, it's a, it's your influence. Um, you played me like the good stuff, so it's not just me listening to "Born in the USA" too many times on the radio, right? Um, because he's got just so much material. He's a really, really amazing artist, and his band is so great. Yes, I mean, just generally speaking, all of that early stuff I I adore, and that movie that they did. Um, blinded by the light yes i loved mm-hmm. i mean i just you know i don't really have a connection to getting super into bruce springsteen as a teenager or whatever but that movie is so great the music is woven into it so well mm-hmm. and you know i just have that feeling of when you're like 
a teenager and you connect with an artist, yes, no matter who the artist is, when you like have that like connection with them, it's just crazy. It's like such an amazing feeling. It just like fills you up and it's so crazy. And that's why we love music. Oh yeah. You know, but it's funny that this is called Streets of Fire after the Bruce Springsteen song and the song isn't in it. Because I guess that was the plan, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But then it just couldn't work out because of rights issues or permissions or anything like that. Well, in one of the documentaries, they actually talked about they filmed um, a lip sync performance of Streets of Fire. And that was supposed to be the closing number of the film mm-hmm. when Cody left the theater. And I wonder if that will ever see the light of day. I wonder. Well, probably not. Bruce <laughs> Springsteen just starts selling everything off. But... I mean, I'm really glad they kept the title anyway, because yeah. it's, a, it's a really great title, and it means a lot of different things in this movie. Like, you have the fire that's, like, the passion that everybody has in this movie. Yeah. You also have, like, literal flaming, exploding motorcycles in the street. So, these are, like, literal and figurative streets of fire. It's a great title. Well, and I also like the fact that tonight is what it means to be young, is what happened because they couldn't use streets of fire. I think that's a happy accident. Me too. Because that song is so awesome, and it almost makes the movie more personal in a certain way. Sure does. Because it's not using a cover song, it's using, like, this original song that has like this angsty like love element to it and it fits so well in that ending which of course we know how important that ending is to this movie it, it's amazing and i love the piano outro yeah oh it's, it's just amazing. a gorgeous i just song. love how like the music like in the and the vocals start to just layer on top of each other on top on top on top on top so you have like all these voices like singing mm-hmm. it's really cool yeah it's it's a really beautiful song and no matter how good the song streets of fire by bruce springsteen is i'm not sure it would have worked the way that tonight is what it means to be young works no i mean i'm a massive bruce springsteen fan i have wonderful memories listening to it when i was younger clarence clemens saxophone Uh, oh i mean i will never not want to listen to a certain group of bruce springsteen songs um, but I just think, like, yeah, in this movie, the original is best. So, I mean, I don't even know where to go next. It's like, I, I feel like we've talked about a ton of stuff, but yet at the same time, there's so much other stuff I want to talk about. Um, Rick Moranis. Let's yes. talk about Rick Moranis for a minute. So funny. We love this dude anyway. It's mm-hmm. no mystery. We did a Ghostbusters episode. We sang the praises of Lewis Tully. Yes. But... This Billy Fish character is a little bit different from what I was used to thinking of Rick Moranis as. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, again, I saw this later in life after I'd seen, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and these like family type films, Little Giants. And I know that like earlier in his career, like this kind of little sarcastic nerd dude was kind of like a little bit more his forte, but. I, you know, I thought of him as Ghostbusters guy. I thought of him as, like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids guy. Mm -hmm. So seeing him in this role where he's, like, this fast-talking, like, no-bullshit guy was so funny. And, like, he's just constantly saying, like, quotable quips 
in this, like, the whole way through. Mm -hmm. Like, two times in the beginning when they're talking about going to the battery to rescue Ellen. He's like, yeah, that place is the shits. And then they talk about they're going to Torchies, and they're like, yeah, it's the shits. And I'm just like, I love this. Like, I constantly say that something is the shits. Yeah. And it's just because his level of disgust is so perfect that I just feel it in my bones, and I love it. Well, he is very cutting in this movie, and I think this is the first time in my memory that I saw him really tried to use his words to slice someone in half. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what was so different, I would say, about the character. And then you did have, again, you, you had this this thick exterior, but you did have vulnerability. You had a guy, you know, that you could tell was kind of a geek and yeah. he'd been picked on. Yeah, and that's why he has, like, this blustery personality. Right. Because he's like, if I can just keep talking and keep, you know, showing what I can do, then nobody will bother me. Um, so, yeah, you definitely get that sense. And he plays that very well. He's perfect. And also in older movies, I mean, even in some newer movies, how do you know if someone is a geek? Glasses, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, he has these glasses on and then he also has all these patterned suits and a bow tie most of the time i think yeah and it's like so it's like it's like he's 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 still nerdy but it's like he's kind of hip yeah well it's it's like it's he's got like his i don't know i guess a richer version of uh little shop of horrors type of wardrobe on absolutely yeah and uh yeah but he's still like this kind of nerdy dude and he's but he's so funny like Mm -hmm. He's so funny in this. Like, again, with the shits, I can't stop. (laughs) But then also, like, (laughs) one of my other favorite scenes, and I know this one of yours too, is they're driving through Ardmore, I think is the name Mm -hmm. of the area. And they're saying, like, you can't get through there if you don't pay the cops off. So they get stopped by the cops, and they're trying to, you know, say... Oh, we're just this band. We're just trying to get to our show. But, you know, then he's like, oh, you know, I'll pay these guys off or whatever. So he goes to pay the cops off and he gives them some money. And then they're like, keep it coming. And he's like, you guys take a big bite. And they're like, that's right. (laughs) And John and I say this all the time, too. Oh, yeah. I love it. And one of the cops... Uh, the one that that has the the dialogue there, that's Peter Jason, who's like a a John Carpenter regular. Um, we've seen him a ton of times. Yeah, he's really good. I mean, that's the other thing. There's like so many people in this who you know. Like we already talked about the doo-wop guys, the Sorrells, right. which three out of the four guys I know their like names. Um, then you have like this minor part of Ed Begley, right, Junior, who they just roll up on when they're going into trying to break into Torchies. Mm-hmm. He's like this weird hobo, like all crusty and covered in dirt. Yeah, and he gets into kind of an altercation with Rick Moranis, and it's also funny again. Um, Lynn Thigpen, who is kind of the radio announcer in the Warriors, she has mm-hmm. a wonderful voice. And she also, I believe, is on Where in the World's Carmen San Diego. I think that's where I know her from. Yeah. Um, she is. Uh, she's in this as 
a driver. Yeah, she's a, a subway driver. Yeah. So they run into her later on in the movie. Um, and you have your cops, one of whom is Rick Rossovich, who was in Roxanne. Yes. Hilarious. An- another, <laughs> hilarious. another classic, uh, male bimbo type kind of a role in mm-hmm. that. He's kind of like the dumbest man on film in like every movie. <laughs> He's so good at that. He's so good. Yes. He just plays really dumb and it's great. Um, yeah, he's, he's good in this and there's just, everybody's good in it. And of course, again, Bill Paxton keeps coming back and just being ridiculous every time. And the first scene there that he's kind of in, he gets punched out by Greer. And the second scene, he's like at the bar where he works and he gets punched out by Amy Madigan. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Then like later on, I have this memory of him like when... The bombers show up, like, to fight. Mm-hmm. He, like, is like, oh, what's going on? And then he, like, runs off, and you think he's just running away. Mm-hmm. No. He's going to get more dudes and guns, and they, like, come back. Like, they're going to, like, go after him. You know, this is when Cody says, like, no, he'll have, like, a one-on-one fight with Raven using s- sledgehammers, for God's sakes. <laughs> to end everything, you and know. The, and then they said, uh, I'm sorry, Michael Perret said that the sledgehammers that they used actually had like 10 or 11 pound aluminum heads. And because of the proximity of the fighting, uh, Walter Hill said that he wanted to use Willem Dafoe and Michael Perret for this fight. So uh, I stunt doubles were used minimally, you know, and they said it took two weeks, you know, to do... Uh, this sledgehammer fight, which then turns into this like kick-ass brawl. Yeah, I mean it—it's a very good fight. And there's like, a lot of like background guys in that scene. Like, yeah, it's it's it feels very visceral. It mm-hmm. feels like a real fight, and it is because they're really like you know swinging around sledgehammers at each other, which is terrifying. Look, every time I see it. You know, I'm always like, oh, wow, that's crazy. But I always was like, oh, I bet you they had, like, you know, styrofoam on the end. Nope. No. Nope. No, that, that's not the case. And then you also have the Bombers, the evil gang, played by Hell's Angels. You know? So you have, like, this biker gang, you know, watching you go head-to-head with a guy, and each of you have a sledgehammer. I mean, that's that's a real closing battle that you remember you know that that's like the prime event yeah and i love that because that's that's the last fight in the film yeah and it's boy it's it's escalated to a real point yeah it's great and you know it's scary Mm -hmm. like it felt like there's real stakes when you're watching that and in addition to it being these two guys fighting with each other there's all these other dudes like standing around watching them with guns and weapons and all this stuff so you have the feeling that like the whole thing could just turn into a riot at any time. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it was a very, very tense scene. And every time I see it, when everyone shows up, when the entire group of bombers shows up, and then all the people of the Richmond show up, and they're ready. Yeah, you know they are ready. And you know it really could have broken into something more. But, you know, when Willem Dafoe's beaten 
they kind of acknowledge that he's beaten. Yeah. And they take him away and they leave for good. Yeah. And, you know, basically Cody hasn't just brought back Ellen and saved her. He's also kind of made this place safe for all the people who live there. Well, and he brought back Ellen's music to them. And it's, yeah, it's just like he fully restores the town in every way. And that, in that way, it is like an old Western. Yes. He makes everything good. And I mean, we should talk about the costumes. So Giorgio Armani, you know, and I mean, they, uh, you know, again, these documentaries, I've gotten so much information, you know, I'm just like regurgitating here, um, throwing in a thing here and there that I think. But the clothing that Michael Pere had, he had this enormous uh, duster. It was very thick and I believe it was suede and his pants, I believe, were suede as well. Wow. And, um, you know, he said it was it was very thick. And, you know, it was supposed to be like a, a soldier. You know, you feel like you could sleep, you know, on the street. And he has a, a very old-timey look because he has, like, on that that white kind of... It looks almost like a, like an undershirt, you know, that yeah. you would see a cowboy wearing. And he has suspenders. And they talked about, you know, Cody coming back from the war. He was in the Army. And then, you know, we already established that McCoy, McCoy yeah. was in the Army. And she's got, like, a mechanics jumpsuit on or almost like a parachutist type of a jumpsuit. You're you're on target there because the mechanics thing, because she said she worked in the motor pool. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's right there. And also, I feel like both of these characters have, uh, I, I don't know, to me, I feel like they're from the Civil War era because McCoy has this leather cap. And just the way it sits on her head reminds me of the Civil War photos and the very particular kind of cap those soldiers would wear. Also, she has like this tweed coat and it has this collar that buttons and she never really zips it up or anything. She'll just button the collar at her neck. And, you know, the the jumpsuit, the kind of gray jumpsuit underneath, once again, makes me think about, you know, the Civil War. Yeah, it's like, and again, you know, the Civil War, I mean, you had farmers that were just going out to war. Yeah, you brought this up, and it's nothing I ever would have thought about myself, but, like, even if I just think about the coat that Cody has on. Yeah. Yeah, I see it, because, you know, yeah, he does cut the figure Mm -hmm. of, like, an old soldier. Very much, and it's also, they said the idea behind it was a cowboy, you know, like a duster from a cowboy, and that... That completely makes sense as well. But since they made a point that both of those characters were in the army, I really felt that their outfits reflected that. And it's so funny to me that, like, we've got Giorgio Armani, you know, in particular with, like, Cody's outfit, because it, it, they just look like the, these disparate items. It's baffling to Yeah, me. that, that yeah. you pulled out. I never would think, oh, my gosh, this it's... amazing fashion designer. Did no, this. it looks like he bought it at Goodwill, yeah. like for real. I don't see anything designer about that, but that's just the magic of this film, I guess. And I mean, I think that, again, you had talked about Rick Moranis' outfits, that he has these crazy plaids and checks and different patterns that are all kind of mixed up. And part of that is because it just shows that he's like brash and loud. So he's brash and loud kind of clothes. 
And then Ellen has, like, stage wear on Mm -hmm. for a good portion of the movie. Yeah. With, like, the red kind of under piece that she's wearing with, like, black over it. Yeah. And it looks like, I don't know, something they put on Gem and the Holograms or something. um, Which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she's got, like, a Susie Quattro haircut. Yes. And she just looks like, you know, early 80s rock and roll girl. Um, and so that's really cool. I love that outfit that she has from that early um, stage wear piece. Later, I'm not really sure what they put her in in the last scene. It looks like she's from Dynasty or something. Yeah. With like this weird older ladies type dress, but it's got like a super low cut back. Right. It kind of looks like she's wearing like an oversized jacket backwards or something. Oh, wow. It's a very odd kind of a look. I always just accepted it because I feel that a lot of rock stars wear very cutting-edge clothing. Yeah. And the designs are always unique. And since it is a rock star, I, I fully accepted it. And thematically with her clothing at the beginning, it's like she has, you know, the red and she has the black. So it's like the red is like passion and love. And the black could be like, you know, death, sadness, despair, Yeah, and at the end it's just red. Correct. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because it's just like she's back, you know, and and that's what we have. And also, again, it's like there's closure because the relationship between... Cody and Ellen, you know, is is unresolved, you know, in their past meeting, which is before the movie begins. And it's just it's really well done. It's a smart movie. And I, you know, I feel like I don't know if it was just marketed really wrong or people didn't know how to market it because it was such a different kind of a movie. Yeah, because it is a very different movie. So what was said is that when they were in post-production, the studio had changed. And the new studio head did not want anything from the previous studio head to succeed. So he didn't want to put anything behind it. Mm. Also, there was a situation, just like you said, where people didn't know what it was. And because they didn't know what it was, they were just like, ah. And Walter Hill said everything was a fight. They said there was like, there were like uh, A-tier theaters and B-tier theaters. And there was a whole argument about where they would go would they get good theaters and i think they ended up like in the lower tier Mm. you know publicity there wasn't really that much um not well-known actors really yeah at the time i mean i guess rick moranis probably was the best known well it's funny because i would think that they're known but i i don't know what the timelines are on the other movies for these these actors i mean that that brings me to another point which is this um all of these actors or our main people have a connection to music right so we have michael perret you know as tom cody and he was cast because he was the lead you know he was eddie and the cruisers eddie and the cruisers a great movie right and he was a rock star that Mm -hmm. was that was him and so he's a rock star in eddie and the cruisers and it's like okay we, we get him into this music movie we have Diane Lane. Diane Lane was in Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, another music movie. She was in a band. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, bring that person around. Amy Madigan, she had a band. She was in a band called Jelly. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And they actually had an album that came out, you know, in the 70s. There's her music connection. Rick Moranis, SCTV. He did musical bits there. Yes. You know, so it's like all of these Bill people. Bill Paxton. Uh, yeah, Bill Paxton. You know, our Coconut Pete. I mean, that came <laughs> much later. I don't know if he had anything prior, but I, oh, uh, he had, he had a band. Martini Ranch. Yeah, that, that was, that was Bill Paxton's band. We actually just got a 45 of Martini Ranch. And it was really good. It was great. I mean, I think it was around this time. I don't know if it started before this, but I'm guessing it probably did because it. I would imagine it takes a little while to get. Yeah, well, one way or the other, going. it's yeah. still a music connection, whether it was prior or after. And he was Coconut Pete and Club Dread, which is phenomenal. Yes, I mean Bill. Nothing Paxton. better than that. I mean, damn, Bill Paxton is great. Yeah, great I actor. Miss, miss that dude. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, that is a really good point. And it's really interesting that all of these people were like musical. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes sense in the context of this movie, because this movie is so music forward, whether you want to think about it as a musical or not. And again, I'm still kind of on the fence. I think that the best way to describe it is a 90 minute music video. Yeah. And... I love that about it. I mean, it, it. you think about like the great music videos of the 80s when music videos were really coming into their own as an art form. Sure. And you have like these stories. It's like could be a simple kind of a story, but it's told really well in the context of a music video with this great song. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess probably the, the one I think about first before anything else is the AHA video. Okay. For Take On Me. Oh, that was so Which creative. is an amazing, beautiful video. Yes. Uh, of a girl who, like, goes into a comic book. Wow, that's brilliant. Um, you know, and it's it's just really well done. And that mm -hmm. could have been a movie, you know? I wanted it to be a movie. Every time I watched it, I'm like, I wish this was longer. Yeah, it's it, it could have easily been a movie. I think everybody would have gone to see that. Yeah. So, you know, if they could have somehow tied it in, tied in Streets of Fire to MTV and like music videos, I think more, it would have found an audience and more people could have loved it. Well, I'm pretty sure I could dream about you had a video and on the, uh, again, on the bonus disc, there were other music videos and I don't necessarily remember seeing videos other than I can dream about you. Mm -hmm. It's possible because well, again, I didn't see streets of fire you know, for a few years after, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, again, it was like the home video that that's, that's when I was able to. Well, I was a board. pretty heavy MTV watcher mm -hmm. before my mom saw me watching an Ozzy Osbourne video and probably called the cable company to remove it from the television or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't remember seeing anything from this movie. Okay. That being said, it's not like I remember everything that ever happened in my entire life, but you know, with music, I, I really loved it, so I remember a lot, you mm -hmm. know. And I don't really remember seeing anything of this, but who knows? Like, I could have. Um, we were watching another movie the other day, Donnie Darko. Mm -hmm. And it had the song Under the Milky Way by the church. Mm -hmm. And I thought, when I heard that on the radio a couple years ago, that I'd never heard it before. But I must have heard it when I saw Donnie Darko, and I just didn't remember somehow. Um, but yeah, so again, possible, but not something I 
just vividly remember. And, you know, it's too bad because I would have loved watching this movie when I was a teenager. This would have been perfect for me then because I was so into music. Definitely wanted to be a rock star like Ellen Aim and a general badass like McCoy. Yeah. I would have, like, thought this movie was the best. So it's too bad we didn't know each other when we were teenagers. Oh, yeah. For many reasons, but Streets of Fire being one of them. Yeah, I mean, this was just something that was always on repeat. And there were people that were in the know. And when people were in the know with this, they were fully on board. And they would always go the distance with you. And they knew the songs. And they knew the lines. Yeah. I mean, and we listened to the soundtrack in the car periodically anyway. I mean, you know, (laughs) every now and then I really want to hear... Nowhere Fast, and Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. So those two songs are bomb. Well, this is a very funny story. I just remembered this. So years ago, I would say uh, early 2000s, okay, uh, I got the CD soundtrack to this. And, you know, I was so excited. And I was listening to it on the CD player in my car, and I was just like speeding because I was just so excited. <laughs> you were going nowhere fast. Yeah, I was. I was like, I was so happy. I was into all the tunes. And then I remember seeing the police lights. And then I looked at the speedometer and I'm like, oh, shit. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But officer, I was listening to the Streets of Fire soundtrack. Oh, you mean nowhere fast? <laughs> you're okay, all right, you're buddy. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. If only. If only. So, I mean, oh, God, what else? Like, the artwork mm-hmm. on the poster of this movie? Oh, the Like, artwork. there's actually quite a few posters, right? So many. But, like, the main one is kind of like this comic graphic novel style, um, very colorful yeah. kind of painting. Or was it, did they say it was based off of, like, a wood block or something? Like a wood etching? If I get that yeah, right? I don't I know mean, if I got that right. It's really pretty. Like, it's something you would hang up in your, oh, in yeah. your house. I would love to have all the artwork from this. I would yeah. dedicate a room to this. Yeah, I, I, I would allow you to, because it's that good. That's awesome. <laughs> well, the production design, I mean, all of the colors, the city comes alive, and it reminds me of... Like Batman Returns and Batman, it reminds me of the Tim Burton Batman films. Yeah. Because in those movies, they had like this dark, gritty world, you know, that had some neon, had a lot of shadows. And it was just like these these amazing, like, I, I don't know, what do I want to say? Like iconic settings. Yeah. I, I mean, is, is that what I'm looking yeah, for? Yeah, I think so. Well, and it was... You know, it seemed like it was always raining and stuff in that Batman, which is the same thing in this, you know. And, yeah, it had, like, all this metal, and but, like, old metal, like, heavy, you know, infrastructure. Yeah. Bridge and elevated train type stuff. Well, they talked about Blade Runner, and they talked about there being similarities with that i see some of the influence there i mean that was another movie with a lot of neon and Mm -hmm. rain um these are two things that look super cool on film well let's talk about torchies so torchies is the bombers hangout and they said that this was in an old uh borax factory that was going to be demolished 
And there there were, I think, like some demolished buildings around the area. Yeah. They said it looked like an absolute mess. I mean, let's not forget it's the shits. <laughs> it is the shits. And bro. yeah, they go there to rescue Ellen because Raven has her kind of tied up to the bed in some upstairs weird room i don't even know why there's a bed there but okay and then you can you can see ellen outside the window like yeah i i don't know and like cody's big plan is to like just shoot some motorcycles which immediately burst into flame i love that which is totally ridiculous but you go with it in the context of the movie um and yeah, he's up on the roof and he can like see her in Torchies. And Torchies, I think what you were probably going for here is like a bar name that was used in other Walter Hill movies. Yes, it was used in 48 Hours and The Driver. Yeah, and in the other ones they had like the same kind of uh, neon sign. And this one I think it was slightly different. Yeah, I mean the production designer talked about it was a sign that was slightly different because it was in the style of a bar that was in Burbank, I believe. Mm. They wanted it to look kind of... Uh, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. is the Frolic Room. Oh, yeah, in yeah, Hollywood, yeah. the sign on the Frolic Room. Yes. I, I can't even think of the, the word I wanted to use to describe the sign, but that is perfect. Yeah, yes. That's what the font looks like. It's the thing that's near... The Pantages. Okay. But yeah, so it's like a recurring kind of a thing for him. Mm-hmm. And the other super cool thing that's happening in the scene is that this band, the Blasters, yeah. are like playing music and they kick mega ass. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually saw the Blasters live. Yes. Last summer um, at, in Orange County at the Orange County Fair, which was awesome. Like whoever thought we'd be seeing the Blasters. Yeah. They sang One Bad Stud. Yes, it was awesome. Oh, so good. The other song they play in this is Blue Shadow. Yeah. And, oh my God, that song is great. Mm -hmm. That song is one of the best songs in the movie, again. Like, another one that I just need to hear sometimes, because it's too good. And there's, like, this dancer dancing Mm -hmm. on, like, the bar or on a table or something in the scene. And she's awesome, too. She was the, the dance double... And flash dance, if I'm not mistaken. No, that's what they said. And like the woman can dance, like she's a, she. You can't take your eyes off her. She's amazing. Yeah, she is another person that's in complete control of her body. Very, very skilled dancer. And in the scene, she's also stripping. Yeah. And it's it's like okay, she has like a leather skirt on, and she has like a, a halter top. But then she has on head-to-toe, like, fishnets. Yeah, it's a really weird outfit. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a fishnet bodysuit. Body yeah. Like, but cat suit, I guess, because it's, like, got legs and arms and everything. It's like she's the catch of the day yeah. or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, like, maybe she's, like, a mermaid with legs. Ooh, see? Now they that's a cool movie. fish her out of the drink. <laughs> um, but, no, she's great. I mean, I think she's fantastic. And, you know, it just fits, like, the mood of this place, which is, like, very anarchic and, mm-hmm. like, crazy. So, this movie is, like, you're really one of your favorites, right? Like, you would say this is in your, this probably would be in your top five. This actually could be number one. Oh, my God. Yeah, really could be number one, and it's been there 
for a long time. And the reason that I say it is I will keep watching it. And preparing for this, having to watch the documentaries or having to, to revisit a scene just so I could clearly speak about it, um, I was like, hey, why don't I just watch the whole thing again? <laughs> you know, it's that's really good. That's that just does show you how much you love it because it's like any time is a good time to yeah. put it back on. And yeah, we've bought this on so many formats and, you know, gone to see it at the movies and I would go to see it at the movies again. Yeah. It, like if I found out it was playing at the movies again in a week or two, I would be like, oh, we got to get tickets because I would definitely, I would want to see it, but even more so I would want you to go because I know how much you love it. Um, and you know, it just means so much to you. So why do you think that is? Like, what is it about this movie? I know we've talked about a lot of different things, but what do you think it is about this movie that really puts it over the top for you? Well, I mean, we've got this character, Tom Cody, who is an outsider and he has his family and he has this code of honor. And I'm always a fan of people that live by their own code. But what I like about this character is he marches to the beat of his own drum and he does whatever he thinks is right. I like everything about it. I mean, I love the fact that it is essentially, you know, an hour and a half music video where we have, you know, these deeper relationships with people than we would get in the three or four minutes in a video, you know, on MTV or VH1 back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, like we talked about the AHA music video, Take On Me, and how we wanted that to continue. This movie, for me, is like that did continue. Yeah. It's like it takes that, that piece that you love and brings it into this fully formed organism. Walter Hill does a fantastic job of creating another world. And I like the idea of not being stuck in one place. And this is like the best of all places for me because this is a world that revolves around music music is the most important thing in this town and music means so much to me that to have a place where music is life i mean that's that's where i'd want to be i mean there are things in the city that are very run down difficult you know the gangs yeah but you also have the beauty of people not dying. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I mean, there's a part in the movie where McCoy shoots one of the bombers, okay, and the guy, like, takes a tumble, and she's like, next one's right in the nuts, pal. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, like, even if she did shoot him in the nuts, he would be fine in, like, a week. You <laughs> know what I mean? And everything would be like fine. Like, it's a cartoon. Like, everybody just bounces right back. Correct. I yeah. feel like everything grows back. Like, his entire genitalia would, like, <laughs> regenerate. You know, his leg would be healed. Well, yeah, you like, know? Willem Dafoe, like, it's, you know, he's bleeding a little at the end of the big fight. Yeah. But, like, you know, he doesn't look like he's going to die. It's oh. like, they're just, like, take him, patch him up, throw an ice pack on him. We'll be fine. He'll walk it off. Exactly. It, it's just like mythology. Yeah. You know, it's like these characters are going to live forever, you know, and maybe again, Raven and Tom Cody will fight again another day. You know, is this the end of Tom Cody and uh, Ellen Aim? I mean, you know, in my mind, yes, but 
in this world that Walter Hill has created? Probably not. These people are always going to be circling each other. Yeah. And like you said, we have all these different parts of the city, you know, each with a different name and each distinctively different. So I don't know. And that brings me back to the Warriors. Like he did that in the Warriors where they had like these gangs that controlled their particular turf within right. the city. Right. And, you know, everything was very demarcated with where like everybody was allowed to be and allowed to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that movie too. It's so good. I mean, Walter Hill has so many things that I love. He's so good at creating like this very like comic booky graphic novely type of world and he did it before that was really a thing yeah and i love that i love that and he's very good at tying together like visuals and action and storytelling and music in every movie you know and just you know getting the right people for the job whether it's the actors the costume designers the production designers the cinematographer whoever's working on the movie is the right person that fits with that story. Yeah. And I think that's a serious talent to be able to bring all of those things together and, you know, be a good director, you know, and he, he really had a very strong sense of action in this movie and in the warriors and other movies that he did as well. Well, I mean, again, we have a person that's a huge fan of Sam Peckinpah who deals with these issues, you know, of honor, of loyalty, friendship. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that this does have a Western kind of a structure to it Mm -hmm. um, because you also really enjoy those types of movies now, you know. Yeah, very much. All right. Let's talk a little bit about this redemption arc of Cody. Yeah, yeah. This is something that I think we we should bring up because redemption is such a big part of this character. We have Tom Cody come back to town and he meets up with the police shortly after getting back and they're not happy to see him. He's like joyriding in the car that he's kind of appropriated. (laughs) I'm not going to say he stole it because it was kind of abandoned. Mm -hmm. We don't even know if it belonged to those street toughs. I'm pretty sure it did. I mean, they could have stolen it, too, though. Absolutely. Absolutely with that. I mean, they were kind of like the orphans from the (laughs) Warriors. They seemed like they had a real heavy rap, in quotation marks, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe they were just rich kids who had this souped-up mercury. Um, But anyway, they ran off. Well, that was such a great scene where they're in the diner, you know, and they come in and they try to rough up Reva. And he just takes care of this entire gang in short order. Yeah. And, you know, the leader pulls out a butterfly knife. Uh, thinks ridiculous. <laughs> guy thinks he's the coolest thing on earth. I love that he takes the knife from him and he slaps him. <laughs> and he goes like, okay, try again. Yeah. And he gives it back to him and he tries again and he takes it. Then he really smacks him down. Then he picks up the coat rack and really starts getting to business. That's ridiculous saying. It's hilarious because he's not even breaking a sweat. It's no. just like, whatever, just let me get rid of these idiots. I well, mean, it's ridiculous. Well, what was interesting, and I didn't know this, and Michael Perret said that two years prior to this, he was actually a chef yeah. at New York City. So he was excellent with a knife. <laughs> he was really good at knife throwing, and he had never seen a butterfly knife before. But after just being introduced to it, 
he was a pro in seconds. Yeah, it was very cool. I mean, it immediately shows you that you're dealing with this guy who's no nonsense. No. And that's perfect characterization early on in the film. Yeah, and again, it's a man of action. He's not a man of words. And that that bears out the entire movie. I mean, I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but I think we kind of have to talk about, you know, the punch-out moment. Oh, Uh, yeah. This is something that we would, like, never see in a movie now. No. And I don't really think we should. No, it's insane. It's, It's terrible, but, like, in the context of the movie... It kind of makes sense. Yeah. Not that I think that means we condone this, but I guess I should talk about what I'm talking about. Um, So what's happening is later in the movie, Tom Cody is like on the the subway with McCoy and uh, Ellen Aim. And in order to kind of get her to leave him alone because he knows what he's about to go do is dangerous, Tom punches out Ellen. Right. I mean, what's happened is he said to her, you know, we're going to go away together. You know, she's like, I don't want you to fight Raven. You don't need to do this fight. I want you to just leave. Let's leave together. And she's willing to walk away from everything just to be with Tom. And it's this amazing moment of love. And it's like, whoa, okay. And then it's like Cody realizes, I, oh, geez, I I can't do this. I can't pull her away from her dream. And also, because he is our gunslinger, he needs to get the bad guys out of town. Yeah. Because if he doesn't, they're going to destroy everything. Well, then he doesn't complete his redemption arc. Right. And also, I think we got to remember, his sister is still going to be here. Right. Even if he and Ellen run off into the sunset, his sister is still in this you know, evil place that needs to be cleansed, you know, and part of his redemption is to fulfill that kind of cleanup of the streets. Yeah. And he's promised it, you know, in himself to everyone that he's going to take care of this. And he can't do that if he's with Ellen and they're running off together. So in order to get her to not come with him. Yeah. He kind of tries this, you know, instead of talking to her, which God forbid, right. you know what I mean? Right. You can't do that. It's a movie, Mm-mm. you know. This is happens in every book and every movie. If people would just talk to each other, there would be no movie. No, there'd be none. <laughs> like, there'd be none at but, all. But, you know, because they are, you know, silent people who don't discuss their feelings. Yeah. We have a story. So that's what happens here. <laughs> Instead of just saying to her, look, I don't want you to give up your dream. I don't think this is something, you know, you should do. And if, you know, us being together means that, then maybe we shouldn't be together. Which he does kind of end up saying later. Right. But right now, he's just used this, this, because he's a man of action. He, you know, kind of is rude to her. Mm -hmm. And then just cold cocks her and knocks her out in one shot. Yeah. Um, And, you know, she's like falls over into McCoy's, you know, arms holding her up. And, you know, it's abusive. Like, obviously, this is abuse. This yeah. isn't something that, you know, I would ever condone or think makes any, you know, sense in the real world. Mm-hmm. But as a plot device, I see why they did it. 
but it's a dangerous line they're walking because it really could turn you against him. Absolutely. And we talked about the script having a much more darker edge originally that they abandoned that idea. And I'm so glad that they did. Yeah. You know, and I mean, this this bizarre remnant, you know, it, it's like, yeah, they're on the subway. McCoy bears witness to this. He tells McCoy, I got to do something tonight I don't want to do. And after he knocks Ellen Aim out and falls into McCoy's arms, he says, get her out of here. Get her out of here as far as you can get. And it's like, you know, Raven has abducted her once. And who knows what would happen, you know, if he got her again. Yeah. Still, I mean, it's absolutely no reason to do this. None. None. No. no. And I just, you know, it, it doesn't. Again, it makes sense on paper. Right. Like, it's something where you can understand the motivations, you can understand how it sort of fits with the character. But again, it's a risk that I wouldn't be, as a filmmaker, be willing to take to turn you off to a a character so badly in, like, you know, the penultimate act of the movie. Yeah. Like, you're, like, in, you know, Act 4 here. We're right before the climax. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you need people to be on Cody's side. Right. Especially as he goes into this fight. Right. But, you know, that could have turned you against him. Especially now. Because I think now we're not used to seeing things like this. Rightfully so. Sure. And it is more jarring. So... It's just a weird thing. It's a weird thing that is like a time change thing. Yeah. Like like the world moves on from, you know, things like that. Um, but, you know, it, it does have kind of that toxic masculinity thing Absolutely. as well. Um, and, you know, what ends up happening in the end is that he does actually just talk to her and say what he thinks right. instead of using violence. And it actually you know, resolves the issue. It's still sad. It's still, like, a really poignant and and difficult moment. Right. But it's not, like, you know, going to leave a mark (laughs) physically. Right. And that's a big deal. I mean, she kind of makes light of it. Yeah. He's like, you know who I am. She's like, yeah, you're the guy with the right hook. Yeah. And it's like, what? And she plays it like it's a joke. Like, oh, you're the guy with the right hook. As if she wouldn't have, like, you know a giant swollen jaw right now. Yes. Because he punched her hard enough to knock her out. Well, it's almost like one of the old detective stories. You know, people always getting cold cocked and knocked out. And then they have a headache for a second and then everything is fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, there's no stakes. Well, and that's part of like the no stakes violence in this movie anyway, I guess. Yes. But yeah, and we've already talked about how this movie has kind of got some DNA mixed up with like old detective movies and Humphrey Bogart and stuff like that. So again, it fits into that kind of older genre, um, kind of a move. But at this point in time, this is something where I would say I have a different reaction to this than I would have if I'd have seen this in the 80s when it came out. Well, I mean, here's something that that I do want to bring up. So it's like right before we get to this scene, there's so much goodwill. And we we see that Tom Cody is a dynamic character because he goes to rescue Ellen Aim reluctantly because he's going to get $10,000. That's why he does it. And, you know... Well, that's why he says he does it. Oh, I know. That's why he says he does it. I mean, again, I believe that there is a heart inside of this guy that we do see later on. 
And, you know, so he, he says he's doing it for the money, you know, and then Ellen Aim finds out that he came to rescue her for the money and they have, you know, this big argument. And then, you know, he, like, decides to go back, you know, to pick up the cash. And he also tells Ellen, you know, that, that it wasn't for the money. You know what I mean? And the way that he does that is he actually takes his cut of the money and he throws it at Billy Fisher, Rick Moranis' character. Again, a man of action. Yeah. And then he kind of gives her the business, which I'm like, what? He's like, I would have done anything for you. And it's like... I mean, and then she... I mean, this is what turns her into, like, running out after him and, like, kissing him. And kissing have, in the rain, yeah. Yeah, and then they have this love scene, which, I mean, like, I don't know. Maybe this character, like, responds to that kind of behavior. I mean, I think there was kind of, like, this toxic idea running through culture um, that we're just starting to get away from. Mm -hmm. And some people still have this thought. Yeah. That this kind of, like, high drama that results in, you know, tantamount to abuse. If it's not abusive exactly with him yelling at her and saying this stuff to her. Yeah. It is close. I mean, it's it certainly isn't good communication. Right. To say the least. But people kind of had the idea, oh, well, that's real love. Like, if you're, like, really upset and worked up, then that's real love. But I think that, you know... I hope we're all re-examining that yeah. a little bit because I think that that is a problematic um, point of view. It's a problematic mindset. Absolutely. I mean, I do think that you see a shift in people. You know, I'm I'm not in any relationship other than ours, so it's like I don't know what's going on out there with younger people or how it works or if you well, know these it things could still be happen. Just the same. I have no, I have idea. no idea. Yeah, and it could even not be a generational thing or a, a a cultural society thing going through time. It could just be a person to person thing that some people just like that and some people don't. And there's like a value placed on people who do feel that, you know, these highly dramatic emotional things are valuable. But I think that, again, it's a problematic mindset that we need to examine as a people. Sure. Well, I also think with Tom Cody, with, you know, the punch out, this behavior, it's like they show us that he is dynamic, but there is resistance to that dynamism. Okay. It's just like, he is not going to change. You know, it's like he's trying really hard to be this other person, but he is absolutely, decidedly not this person. He he can't change. Yeah. And it, it's like, you know, you have the Billy Fish character, you know, very successful man in the music business. That's a very tough business. Very intelligent great with words and you also get the idea maybe it's just because rick moranis and we have our preconceived notions that he would be an excellent partner i think that he would care for ellen aim i think he would get her everything that she needs and i think that he would love her till the day well, she does he's, he's very protective i mean yeah. we see him kind of be snappy but it's never really with her that i remember it's mm -mm. pretty much with everybody else you yeah. know and it's, it's through him trying to protect her and trying to do what's best for her. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is why, at the end, Tom Cody is able to say to him, you're better for her than I am. Yes. Because he sees that. Well, and also, you know, when I was younger, this is a, a very funny point I want to bring up. The actual punch on the subway, I don't know what it is if I always just fell asleep or wasn't looking at that point. 
I literally wasn't even aware of it until someone brought it up to me years later. <laughs> They're like, how about when he punches her out on the subway? I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like it's like you went into a fugue state yeah. so that you could avoid it. <laughs> it's something that I do when I read or I watch a movie and it's like I'm enjoying the material, but there's something I don't like. I just create my own version. <laughs> you just dissociate you know? and make up your own little part of the story like oh he just you know told her to sit down and he'd be right back that's what happened (laughs) it's funny well and again it's like when you talked about ellen aim and mccoy is like you know these two different people you wanted to be i think that when you take a look at billy fish and you take a look at tom cody those are like two people that that you could want to be because you know who wouldn't want to be big in the music business and be successful and be intelligent Yeah, and be making deals and be smart and kind of an operator. Right. And then at the same time, you have, like, this strong, silent type guy who goes out and, like, takes care of business. I can see how that would be, like, two um, sort of ideals of masculinity to to at least a certain extent. I mean, I don't know if anybody's going to say Rick Moranis is an ideal of masculinity. I certainly think so, because I think Rick Moranis is amazing. I think that was showing us that, hey... You know, the guy that is a geek can be a great guy. I mean, I'm a geek. You know, I think well, I'm all I right. Well, I mean, nerds' cachet has been rising for a really long time. So, you know, again, we might look at a nerd differently now than we looked at it back in the 80s, too. Well, we also take a look again at McCoy and Cody as a great team, right? McCoy has a temper. McCoy is violent. You yeah. know what I mean? Cody is violent. They both come from a military background, and for the most part, you know, I would say they are similar. I would say that McCoy does something that is amazing, which is she gets Cody to talk more, if you notice that. Yes, she does. They have that witty banter back and forth. And when he's with Ellen, it's like he's just struggling to get out a few words, (laughs) you know? Yeah, he's not a guy who can talk about his feelings, that's for sure. Absolutely not. So, I don't know, that that's a, a long way around, but, you know, if this redemption arc, you know, <laughs> can, can sustain the punch-out, I mean, I don't know. But the, the redemption arc, for me, comes about because Tom Cody, they said, was a juvenile delinquent. It's somebody that very well could have ended up like Raven. Mm-hmm. Throughout the film, the police actually changed their attitude on him. You know, they tell him, don't fight Raven, even though he wants to fight you for the town. Don't. Tom comes back anyway. And, you know, the chief looks at him and he goes, well, my plan went to shit. You know, (laughs) kick his ass. Yeah. And so the police are (laughs) on his team. they're like on the team, yeah. So he he has become a full-fledged hero. Yeah. You know, by, by the end of the film. He's a good guy. And at that point, that's when he actually talks to Ellen. Yeah. He actually has the discussion, and again, he gives her that closure that she needs on their relationship so they can both move on. It seemed like a first love. Yeah. And, you know, when he went into the Army, she says to him, you know, you didn't talk to me for two years. You didn't write to me. You know, what did you expect me to do? Did you expect me to wait for you? Again, it's just he doesn't talk. He no. just does. He Yeah, exactly. That's just who he is as a person. And, you know, I think at the end of that, the movie, he's accepting that and Mm -hmm. he's, you know, saying that he can use that as a strength, you know, instead of a weakness maybe going forward. And I just feel like the last conversation that he has with her um, is kind of 
the conclusion of the redemption arc because it's like he redeems himself in society and he redeems himself in the relationship with Ellen yeah. so that they can both move on and have healthier relationships in the future. And that's what I feel like when he leaves the theater at the end of the film during tonight is what it means to be young. He comes out and it's like he's sad, he's pensive. I mean, he's at a really low point here because, you know, that relationship with Alan, you know, that has concluded. And guess what? McCoy pulls up in the Mercury and it's like a brand new chapter of life has just begun. And it seems like there is some hope for these people. And yeah. again, they're, they're really, I think there's going to be romantic involvement. And they ride off, you know, not into the sunset. They just ride off into the darkness because this is this is a film in, in darkness. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's beautiful. Yeah, but I and it, but it does end on this positive note. Like yeah. it's bittersweet, mm -hmm. but you know there is sweet there as well. So it's not just you know a bummer. Like I mean, again, it kind of wraps back to that amazing, um, not my idea that somebody had about yeah. Casablanca, where you know you've been rooting for these people to kind of get together, somewhat at least during this movie and then you get to the end and that doesn't happen mm -hmm. but instead of it being like a total super bummer it actually makes sense and you feel like okay well that didn't work out for a reason mm -hmm. but these people do have you know bright futures ahead of them yes it's like two cowboys riding off into the sunset, yeah. you know, these soldier cowboys, because they have boots too, you know, <laughs> and, and that's what it's like. And it's, yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And then, you know, we roll into the credits and we get that piano outro, which is gorgeous. Yeah. It, it Because what I love about that is this is a movie that is so full of life and it has so many layers, you know, in, in terms of emotion, in terms of music. And then at the very end, you know, we have people, you know, going off in the proverbial sunset and everything strips down, right? We just see this dark cityscape and we just have this this piano, which is just a beautiful conclusion. Yeah, that's really great. All right. Um, so I think that's probably about it for Streets of Fire. I think that's it. It's hard to, to stop talking about it because I, I feel like I'm afraid, like I have a fear that we've missed something. I have the that same fear. I really fear. want to talk about, um, but at this moment, I can't recover anything else <laughs> uh, that was left behind. Yeah. So um, I'm really happy we talked about this for your birthday episode. Me too. Because it's such a great movie. It's such a John movie. Like I associate it with you so much. Mm -hmm. And it was a really fun talk. Yeah. You know, we haven't really dug in this deep to this movie before. So I love doing the show because it gives us a chance to talk about movies even more than we already do, which is nearly impossible. But somehow we do it every week. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Jump on our socials and wish John a happy birthday. Go and check out our YouTube. We've got a bunch of videos up right now. You can take a look on there at Comfort Films Podcast on YouTube. And we're going to continue to put clips up of our show, video clips. Yeah, so if you, you know, forgot what our closet looks like, because it's <laughs> been a while. Yep. Or you just would rather see our crazy mugs mm -hmm. while we're talking instead of just listening to us, please check it out. 
Yeah. We'd love to have your feedback and comments on there and, you know, give us some likes. We're hungry for them. Yeah, we're hungry, guys. We want social grooming, people. Come on. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So that was our episode 26. Happy birthday, John. Thank you. I love you and everyone else does too. I love you too and I love (laughs) all of you. And everyone else, please do us all a favor and stay comfy. Stay comfy, everybody.